Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Picture the scene. You're a teen in the late 70s. It's 5 pm, and you're in your bedroom, trying to tune your radio. It'll be decades before online streaming becomes a thing. Most of what you hear is utter rubbish. But then you find a frequency with some actual music. Music that you don't hear on any other stations. You've never heard of this station before. It's not been advertised in any of the papers. For good reason. You see, it's a pirate broadcast, an unlicensed station that is snuck onto the airwaves. Before you can enjoy it any further, you hear your name being called from downstairs. It's your parents. Obligingly, you shuffle out of bed and trudge downstairs. Your parents are gathered around the TV. Something is wrong. The screen is crackling, hissing and humming. Your mum heads to the phone to call Southern while your dad tries banging the box again. But then everybody stops what they're doing. A voice has begun speaking through the television. It was November 26th at 5pm when an alien announcement was broadcasted to the inhabitants of Southern England. It was Vrilon from the Ashtar Command. They had a warning for humanity. Remove all weapons of evil the new age of Aquarius is on its way. The Southern Television Interruption is the first documented case of television piracy here in the UK. How did someone hijack the news with that alien voice? If we can figure out how they did it, we can get closer to figuring out who did it. And I know where to start. I'm Tommy Trelawney. This is The Interruption a podcast from Stack. Episode 5, Operation Space Pirates. I'm on a UFO odyssey, trying to find out who was behind that mysterious broadcast from 1977. So far, I've been guided by the message. It's the only piece of actual evidence we have. It's full of esoteric language that has a lot in common with UFO movements from the 50s onwards. I think whoever was behind the Vrillon message came from one of these groups. It's led me to some unusual places. Amateur investigators. Am I talking to AP Strange? Yeah, that's me. Alien impersonators. Greetings to you, this is Vrillon. Blessings to you. And even Yuri Geller. Hey, Tommy. But I'll be honest, all of them have been dead ends. And I think I know why. There are a million possible motives for hijacking a TV station with a fake alien message. And a million motives can be traced to a million different people. But there's only one method. One way of hijacking a transmitter and beaming that message out across southern England. I think that getting to grips with how the interruption actually happened will offer another route to the truth. 
In other words, there's a method to the madness. Since this was an act of broadcast piracy, I ought to speak with some pirates. But not the pirates of the high seas. I'm talking radio pirates, whose illegal broadcasting activities conquered Britain's airwaves back in the 70s. Since they made breaking onto radio sets seem like a form of art, perhaps they'd know someone who managed to override a television broadcast. Better yet, they might know who was involved. Look, I need to admit something. I do not know the first thing about radio. I can talk for days about history, mythology and UFO religions, but telecommunications is something I'm utterly clueless about. I am vaguely aware of how the southern television interruption might have happened. You basically overwhelm a transmitter with a much stronger signal. But with what equipment? How much power do you need? It was time to do some research and become an overnight expert. No surprise, I began my crash course on YouTube. Hey, I'm a visual learner. Also, there are videos to be found on practically anything. I stumbled across a channel called Ringway Manchester. His videos are on all things amateur radio, from the rise and fall of pirate radio to tech reviews on the latest equipment. His niche channel had found its niche audience, like me. This is Ashton Moss MF transmitter. It sits on a large plot of land next to the M60 motorway to the east of the city of Manchester. Well, it's really to provide an alternative radio for the people to listen to. The events which led to the setting up of Manchester's most famous pirate radio station of the 1970s can be traced back to the offshore... I don't want to say I binged his videos. I prefer the term research. I ended up researching well into the early hours of the morning. This was becoming a worrying habit. Anyway, Ringway Manchester has an email address, so I asked him whether he'd heard of the interruption. A few hours later, he got back to me. He had. We arranged a call later that day. I should mention, his real name is Lewis. When he joined the video call, I quickly noticed the shelf full of old gadgets behind him. I recognised some of them for my research session. If anyone could teach me about pirate radio and broadcast interruptions, it was Lewis. How long has like broadcast jamming existed in the UK? I suppose jamming has happened since radio first came about. It's, it's one of those things people in, in everything, people always find a way to disrupt something. So they started offshore on ships. At a certain distance out, out, they weren't covered by UK law. And the BBC weren't playing what people wanted to hear at the time. So all these people set up ships and they were... He was sending really high-powered signals inland from the ships. Everyone could hear the music, Radio Caroline, uh, sort of ships like that. The story of pirate radio begins in the 60s. Back in those days, there wasn't really much choice on the radio. The BBC had a monopoly over the airwaves. And the music they chose to put out was a bit... How should I put this? Lame? For the next half hour, why not sing something simple along with the Adam Singers, directed by Cliff Adams and accompanied by Jack M. Just join in with all these songs you love to sing. But people didn't want something simple. They wanted this. If you can't go mainstream, go offshore. Radio Caroline was one of Britain's first pirate stations. 
They didn't have a license, but it didn't matter. Broadcasting from a small boat 12 kilometers up the coast of Essex, the station was technically in international waters, outside British jurisdiction. Aboard their vessel, the Mi Amigo, Radio Caroline's DJs ate, slept, and made radio out at sea. They'd go months on end aboard that dingy boat without making land. All to play the greatest hits of the swinging 60s. If you've watched The Boat That Rocked, all this might sound familiar. The film is based on Radio Caroline. But all good things come to an end. Eventually, authorities got wind of the station and passed new laws. After four years out at sea, radio's best-kept secret was forced to close in 1968. But the pirates didn't go away. No, they moved inland. The Marine Offences Act came into place and that outlawed them. There was, there was nothing they could do, so they all came inland then. And then you had the sort of um, 70s and 80s sort of um, onshore inland pirates, land-based pirates, they're called. Uh, and then, of course, a sort of musical taste developed into the 90s when things like house, garage, grime, um, all that came into play. There was sort of a different breed of pirate stations um, then. Um, and that, that's where all that came from. So they were, they were outlawed from being at sea and they came inland. And of course, yeah. which is opposite to pirates, how you imagine them, you know, pirates at sea. The reasons why these pirate stations exist, is it just to share music, these ones in the 70s and 80s? Yeah. Was that their aim? It was basically, yeah, to get to get um, genres of music that, that simply weren't being played out, um, you know, to, to the masses. That was, that was the thing. In towns and cities across Britain, underground radio stations began to spring up. I say underground, but you'd actually find them on high-rise buildings, taping makeshift transmitters to television masts. Any household radios in range could pick up their signal and tune in to these homemade programs. Again, it was all totally illegal, but these unlicensed stations were offering what licensed stations weren't. Variety. London became the hub of these land-based pirates. Dozens sprang up around the capital. In fact, it was common to have two or three of them in your area. They were everywhere, even appearing on TV documentaries. These two men are radio pirates. Between them, they're carrying everything they need to broadcast programmes across the capital. The camera follows two men clad in leather jackets. You can't see their faces for obvious reasons. One of them is carrying a red duffel bag. Today, these pirates, Dave and Jerry, have chosen this tower block in Islington to transmit from. They're going to take the lift to the top floor and force their way onto the roof. The camera cuts to the roof. The men are unpacking the bag. They take out a cassette player, a few wires, and something that looks like a microwave. Once up here, they'll start to assemble their equipment. It'll only take a few minutes. The programme, a mixture of music, discussion and news, has been pre-recorded and will go out through a cheap cassette player. This will be plugged into a transmitter weighing only a few pounds, and the transmitter will be connected to an aerial strapped, in this case, to a convenient TV pole. The 70s and 80s were a golden age for radio piracy. Anybody could tune into their shows, provided you knew the correct frequency. On 94.4 FM, you'd hear Radio Jackie playing the latest hits in popular music. Sound of free radio in London. For soul fans, there was Radio Invicta, over on 92.4 FM. If you hear me spluttering away, it won't be me reacting to the dross, it'll be me reacting to some great music. 
and on 103.8 FM, you'll find the reggae station, Dread Broadcasting Corporation, or DBC for short. DBC is a tongue-in-cheek play on BBC, which stands for British Broadcasting Corporation. At the time, the BBC were not playing black music on mainstream airwaves. I learned all this from an ex-pirate who worked at DBC, Carmela Obinion, who went by the stage name DJ Camilla. It was real to take the piss of the establishment. And, you know, the thing is as well, when you think about that time, you know, Rastafarianism was becoming a thing. It was a, it was a, it was like super cool to be a Rasta, you know, super cool to be involved with dread broadcasting. Carmela wasn't just a DJ. She was involved in all aspects of the station. Occasionally, even installing radio transmitters onto high-rise rooftops. I used to, because I was a proper tomboy, I used to go on the top of them and put the aerials up. I didn't think about it. I didn't think it was anything. I just did it. Yet there's no record anywhere in history of actually women going up there as well, putting the transmitters up. Do you understand? Because I could have fallen down. If I'd fallen down, that would have been the end of me because it was quite dangerous. But a typical tomboy liked to climb in all these places, just got on with it. You know, as I always say to a lot of young women, there was no health and safety. There's no taking into anything that you were a woman doing that. You know, so the toilets would be stuff. The safety, there's no safety. Health and safety, forget it. You just best be tough. Is it is it weird now talking about your time as a pirate? You know, re- reminiscing and just sharing your stories. Is that kind of strange? Is it strange? It's it's a funny thing. Like I don't see it as strange. I see it like, like there was glass walls, ceilings, but we had a glass building, so everything was difficult. There was not one thing that was just handed to you on a plate. There was nothing that was easy. Uh, so I, I don't find it. I don't find it reminiscent. I get excited every time I talk about it, and I love talking about it. And yeah, I don't find it strange at all. (laughs) As with all radio pirates, Carmela risks life, limb, and a possible criminal record to get the music of her community out there. Nowadays, the golden age of piracy has long since passed. With online streaming, anyone can broadcast themselves. Even those who investigate niche topics like an alien voice on the telly. In the decades since, it seems that mainstream outlets have learnt lessons from the pirate pioneers. In the BBC's case, that was Radio 1 Extra, which broadcasts black music. Founded in 2002, it's recently celebrated its 20th birthday. So that's radio piracy, but what about television piracy? Is there any crossover here? In my mind, if you had the skill set to create a pirate radio station, interrupting a television signal doesn't seem too far off. Clearly, there was a lot I still had to learn. Good thing Lewis was here to answer my questions. Signal interruptions are physically quite easy to do, um, but it involves a little bit sort of more know-how and, and sort of different types of equipment. All you have to do is place something between that link. You can either block it out or you can transmit a, a higher powered signal between the link up to the transmitter and you've hijacked the signal. 
with pulling off one of these interruptions, like what specific equipment would these people, assuming it's people, what equipment would they have been using? So, so, I, I is there any footage of, of of is there any original recordings of this incident? Yes, uh, not on the visuals, but there is audio. Yeah. Um, there's a drone, quite a rhythmic drone at quite regular intervals, and it is not quite strong enough to fully overpower the, the signal. Yeah. It's not a very strong signal, but it just about gets over. Yeah. So it would it would have it would have been a relatively low power signal close to Hannington transmitter. Um, the only the only equipment needed would be a, a transmitter, a, a basic transmitter. You can you can feed video and audio into a transmitter with an aerial, and like I say, you, you just match the frequency to the frequency that that link is on. You match the frequency. Imagine you're listening to some music, and I I shout close to your ear. My voice is going to overpower that music, and it, the, the the that's the sort of the, the best analogy I can. I can sort of think of. Looks like television interruptions are actually not that complicated. To you and me, sure. But not to someone who knows a thing or two about radio piracy. I was not expecting this answer. I was under the belief that the Southern television interruption was an act of master engineering, well beyond the capabilities of your average citizen. After all, Stardog had told me that a southern engineer told him Apparently you'd need a flatbed truck of batteries to actually achieve enough power to be able to do it. This was not the case. A microwave-sized battery pack will do just fine. I was still grappling with all this, so I asked Lewis to walk me through the incident from A to Z. What did he think happened that fateful night, the 26th of November? 1977. What I think would have happened is they would they would have planned it for a while. They would have sourced the equipment. You'd need a transmitter, um, a camera or a microphone, or they could have been a pre-record, an antenna, suitable antenna, and a battery pack. So if if I was involved, you would have I wouldn't have probably gone alone. I would have gone with a couple of people. How close to Hannington they would have been is 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 not really known. They would have. It depends on the power, the power output of the transmitter would depend on how close they'd need to be. If they had a really high power transmitter, they could be a bit further away. If it was quite a low power transmitter, they would have been would have been quite close, but I would think we would have probably I mean it was November, it happened at five pm so it would have been dark. So they would have probably gone down in a couple of cars, batteries, then took the transmitters and batteries, plug the aerial in, get everything sorted and you know, go. Form the interruption, they would have probably had lookouts, but again, the, the risk of being caught would have been quite slim because I don't think Hannington was a man transmitter because it wasn't a main transmitter, so the main transmitters were, were all usually manned. Form the interruption, maybe had a lookout or two, got scared when cars passed, and then everything into the back of the car gone. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Lewis was certain this is how it happened. If he was 40 years older, I might have had him down as a suspect. The details Lewis gave me made sense. Not needing much equipment explains why nothing was found at the Hannington transmitter. And using a pre-recorded cassette tape explains why it's just the audio that we hear. It's basically like an upscaled pirate radio broadcast. Actually, it's exactly like that. Now for my big question. Who did it? You probably find it was probably maybe university or college students or possibly a radio amateur just, just experimenting and, and messing about. That's interesting you say that because in the Sunday Times shortly afterwards it was reported that um, it was students using £80 worth of car battery equipment. Yeah. And that's their sort of diagnosis of what happened. Do you agree with that analysis? It's, it's likely because because this the Southern TV interruption would have would have been done with sort of quite simple and quite crude equipment and my my guess would be students at the time college or university students uh, that yeah. wanted to have a laugh with regards to getting getting caught it, it's very easy for the um authorities to trace a signal um and it's really easy nowadays but back then I mean, it was it it was over and done within six minutes, and the engineers at Southampton and Croydon didn't even know about it, and they were they were the ones that were, were supposedly monitoring this 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 um, this transmission anyway. So within the six minutes, it was done. The authorities had no chance of ever they, they were never going to find out who it was, and I suppose even if they'd gone and managed to sort of track the signal and head in that direction, it was probably done by a mobile rig, um, so they would have done it gone. And it's probably in yeah. loft. It's probably in someone's loft now where it's been for, for all those years. That's a strange thought. Perhaps the equipment is in someone's attic. A small dusty box full of radio gear from the 70s, with an alien sticker slapped on the side. I hadn't yet brought in UFO religions. It might confuse things. But I felt like now is a good time to share with him what I discovered. One thing that I have been finding quite interesting to look at is which makes me think that it might not have been students is reading the message itself and it's it's quite quirky and weird at first it's alien from galactic command but then a lot of the messaging you know abandoned nuclear weapons or you know the age of Aquarius is coming the vocab it's using is so in line with various UFO religions the message itself doesn't seem to be a prank whoever wanted this message across believed in these things. So I was wondering whether it could, could you know, someone in, in these UFO groups access this kind of technology and, and do it quite simply or? Yeah, again, yeah. I mean, back at the time, amateur radio was, was a massive thing. I mean, nowadays it, it, it's, it's a, a lot smaller than what it was, but Back in the sort of sixties and seventies and eighties, there would be a radio amateur, or one or more in every street. They were they were they were everywhere. There was thousands and thousands of people who were licensed radio amateurs. It wouldn't take much for somebody who knew one of those people to say, "Oh, listen, 
you've got all this radio stuff at your house, you know, could you sort me out with something like this? It wouldn't take much to do. And I suppose if you're in the if you're in the know-how, um, it's, it's very easy to do. The world of pirate radio changed after the 80s. Technology moved on, and so too did the pirates. Perhaps their secrets went along with them. The process to pull off something like that would have been very simple. It's harder nowadays because the the I mean, a lot of the television is sent over 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 lines now, um, straight into the straight into the home and over the internet, and, and television transmitters are all are all they're all digitally encrypted. Things like that, but then we're talking analog television. If you could match, you could match a transmitter to those frequencies. You could very easily pull something like that off. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's it was really easy to do. I'm, I'm I'm actually surprised there wasn't more of them. But within the amateur radio community, and, and this is probably one of the reasons why we've never got to the bottom of this. There's a lot of paranoia about what people did. So, Back in the day, it was it was like very illegal to do anything untowards with with radio or television. I've been doing research for for certain projects where I've I've reached out to people about things that have sort of happened, which the average Joe wouldn't bat an eyelid at. But they're very paranoid and they, they don't want to bring it up now. So you probably find that the, the, the people who people who know about this and know what happened will never say anything because they, they think that even now that they'll be in trouble for it, which is. Wouldn't, probably wouldn't be the case, um, but yeah, it's, there is still that paranoia amongst some of the radio fraternity, so you'll probably find that the bottom of this will never be reached, unfortunately. Yeah. It's one of those weird things where it's such a great hoax that you would expect after all these years maybe someone would, you know, claim, but yeah, radio silence. I guess pardon, pardon, yeah. pardon that's yeah. not intentional. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange, it, it really is strange. The chat with Lewis was a welcome change from the UFO madness. It's refreshing to hear a more grounded perspective. Hearing how the interruption might have happened made the individual we were looking for seem human. The veneer of mystery was slowly being peeled away, and I was getting more confident that I was onto something. Lewis, however, seemed pretty convinced that I won't. Not for a lack of trying. You see, to him, there is simply not enough evidence to go on. Unless we visit all the attics in England. As for me, I remained undeterred. I had learnt a lot from this conversation. Firstly, the interruption was not this impossible feat of broadcast piracy. Far from it. All you need is some homemade radio equipment and a pre-recorded alien message. It wouldn't take too much to overpower the signal at Hannington either. A small battery would do the trick. But then again, if it really was that easy, why hadn't it been done in the UK before? Why hasn't it been done since? Whoever did this must have been some sort of gadget guru. Secondly, I learned the reason why this story has remained unsolved for so long. Fear of getting in trouble. If any of the radio pirates were involved, they've kept it under wraps. Makes sense. As remarkable as the interruption was, it was still technically a crime. I keep forgetting that. I see it as this incredible thing that someone should own up to. Maybe the fear of getting punished is why no one has come forward all these years. So, 
Where are we now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we're, we're getting there, aren't we? Yeah, we're kind of thinking at the moment the most likely process of what, or most likely explanation was that it was someone in one of these UFO religions knew someone who was into pirate radio, and they basically got them to do it for them. So we're going down both routes and hoping that obviously we're crossing the middle because it was actually. I was now certain that a radio pirate was involved with the interruption. Without the help of someone in the know, I doubt whoever wrote the Vrilon message would have been able to pull this off. Unless, of course, there just so happened to be a new agey, UFO religious radio pirate out there. But the chances of that felt pretty slim. Nikki and I agreed that we were now looking for two people a UFO spiritualist who wrote the message and a pirate who helped it get airtime. We began to call this idea Operation Space Pirates. We now had two routes to explore, UFOs and pirate radio. It's not your ordinary combination, but hey, this is no ordinary mystery. Those pirate stations might have left London, but the UFO churches haven't. Earth, as you call it, faces a certain situation. The situation can be described as a rather a dangerous one. That's George King. We heard him back in episode two. He's the founder of the Aetherius Society, Britain's largest alien-based faith. King is no longer with us. But he has his disciples. What I didn't think would happen is that I'd sort of meet Dr. King, get to know him as I did, and uh, become, I mean, I was obviously, a, I would say, a disciple of his, but at the same time, I was also very, by the end, very close friend of his too, and he was a, which is a great honour as far as I'm concerned. One of these disciples is a powerful leader in the society today. But to me, he's a potential suspect. The voice we're looking for is a young man, a um, British accent, and was interested in UFO spirituality. But that's next time on The Interruption. The Interruption is a stack production written and presented by me, Tommy Trelawney. It was produced and co-written by Nikki Anderson. Sound design by Tom Wally. Executive production for Stack came from Luke Moore, Charlie Morgan and John Teague. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.